This week on a lively experiment, Dan McKee's chief of staff is out within days of the governor expressing confidence in him, despite his role in a controversial land deal. Plus, an increasing number of police officers are wearing body cameras on the beat. Attention now turns to when and how much of the video will be available to the public. A lively experiment is generously underwritten by for more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazenwhite, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us for a Reporters Roundtable this week, Target 12 investigative reporter Steph Machado, retired columnist and political contributor Scott McKay, and Boston Globe reporter Ed Fitzpatrick. And welcome to Lively. I'm Jim Hummel. We appreciate you spending part of your weekend with us. So what changed? Last week, Governor McKee was standing by his man, Chief of Staff Tony Silva. By Monday, Silva was leaving his job. Whether you call it a retirement or a resignation, the effect is still the same, the elimination of what had become a distraction for the governor. Let me just set this up also. There was a controversial land deal. Some said that Silva got involved and used his position in government. Ed, let me begin with you. Either way, the optics are bad, but I, and I don't know what the backsplash is going to be on the governor, whether a year from now when the campaign's at full tilt, they're going to be running the commercials, or whether this is just going to be a footnote in his history. What do you think? Well, you know, Governor McKee had enjoyed a, a great honeymoon. You know, he was signing bills. He was signing bills even two months after the legislature ended its session. He was talking about reopening businesses, reopening the economy. Everything was <clears throat> moving in the right direction with, with the pandemic. But now it, it's really gotten bumpy in the last few weeks. I mean, the Republican Party said he was flip-flopping when it came to the Act and Climate Bill and the, the mask mandate for schools. And I don't think those stick with you. That, that doesn't matter as much. But this issue, I think, does have legs because, you know, he's being attacked already for uh, that this is a Noah guy state and, and, and cronyism. And, you know, I can see a year from now some political ads still taking issue with this week. I mean, it's interesting that we haven't really seen the other Democratic candidates proactively attacking McKee for this incident. I think they're sta standing, we saw, I think, one tweet from They've Nelly Corbea. They've let the Republicans do it, right? The Republicans are attacking him. They're kind of standing back and saying, I'm just going to maybe watch him crash and burn. I'm sure when the AG's investigation into the situation is complete that we'll see, uh, depending on what is found, that we might see uh, more candidates talking about it proactively. But so far, they've been mostly silent about it, just sort of letting it, letting it happen. I mean, Ed's right on the honeymoon aspect of all this. Uh, so far, the governor's had the grand good fortune of having a lot of money, not having deficits snarling at him, fairly good relations until recently, a uh, little blip there with the General Assembly. But this is the kind of thing that gets politics in trouble. We remember the Cranston land dealer with Ed Dupree. Mm -hmm. This local stuff, and I think that you've got a governor who's trying to turn the page a little bit. He wants to listen more to these local folks, uh, the municipal leaders, the Joe Policinas, the Charlie Lombardis, some of these folks who've been around forever. And sometimes they just want a license plate and you can take care of that. And sometimes they want something more. 
And you can see the advertising now. You can see those spot ads, the Cumberland cronies <laughs> with a bunch of music and a dark background. You and could I, be a consultant, Scott. You've I seen think... enough of those, right? <laughs> but, Ed, I wonder also whether there was more that we didn't see or whether the governor saw what we all saw. I mean, when we looked at it, everybody's like, of course he, got, of course he was involved in this. So I know there was a little bit of personal loyalty to Tony Silva. They've been together going back to his being a chief in Cumberland. Yeah. But do you think there may have been more that we didn't see that was Well, yeah, out? they didn't handle it too well because at first the, the message was we're sticking with him. They, they, he yeah. did, there's no undue influence. And then it was like, well, no, actually, we're going to call in the attorney general's office and they're going to investigate. And then just three days later, uh, he's gone. So, uh, you know, it, it, it was it was not handled too well. And, uh, yeah, the, I, it, it's hard to know what he was thinking behind the scenes. Your colleague, Tim White, of course, had the classic interview, the old nothing to see here. Mm -hmm. And I always think it goes downhill when the person you're interviewing begins talking about himself in the third person. Yes. He said, uh, that's not who Tony Silva is. Right. But I thought, and I think... Those those interviews are telling, but I also wonder whether that was kind of the uh, the beginning of what set the process ultimately. I mean, it was a good get by Tim, obviously. Yeah, I mean, listen, keep, we always want to give people the opportunity to explain themselves. He right. he declined to actually sit down with us for an interview for a uh, number of requests. So we go get him. Classic uh, Tim <laughs> yeah. White and, and the great John Valella went went and found him in the in the state house parking lot, and you know he got his chance to say on the record that he didn't do anything wrong. And and I'm sure we'll be using those sound bites for months to come as this attorney general's investigation goes on. But it, it was, as a reporter, it was an unusual timeline, I think, to see the governor really defending him, sticking by him, then calling for an investigation, and then ultimately asking him to leave. Uh, but on a Monday morning, allowing it to be an entirely new news cycle, we're so accustomed to... Friday afternoon. Friday afternoon, afternoon or even on the over the weekend, seeing someone resign sort of quietly when there's not as many eyeballs on the news. So maybe a little bit of a rookie... Um, political snafu for the governor. Uh, about the race overall, Nellie Gorbea, of course, has come out. Now, Seth Magaziner keeps sending out all of, I don't know if the consultants are telling him to do this. We get them all. Uh, we need real leadership. That's why everybody should be vaccinated. It's like, look, handle the pension fund, stay in your own lane until you announce for governor. When should he announce, or what about this kind of cat and mouse with, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about state issues, but I'm still not declaring yet? I think you're going to see Seth come out uh, in a few weeks. I would predict sometime maybe mid-October. Uh, and when he does that, he's going to make himself a target. And I think he's trying to have it both ways for a while is what he's tried to do. Uh, what politician hasn't done that? And I think you're going to see him come out. It'll be interesting to see uh, just how he frames his coming out party. And we'll see what that's like. One thing he's done very well is raise money and get his profile up there. And he also has support, I think, from some strong elements of the Democratic primary. Particularly, I think you'll see him do well with organized labor. You have your eye on Providence, mm -hmm. and, you know, Mayor Lors has raised a lot of money, but there also been some kind of quiet jumping off the ship. His whole communications team, actually, coincidentally, has yeah, gone over... Two of them went to Magaziner. Right, and there's been that yeah. pipeline over the years. What do you sense in terms of a run from him? And, you know, he had that ugly incident with the governor a month ago, and it just... Yeah, it, I, I think he's going to run, although it doesn't seem like he's going to announce anytime soon. Frankly, I think both him and McKee could potentially use that tussle in campaign ads. I think both of them think that they were in the right in that particular situation. 
Um, but, you know, I talk to folks in Providence, and many of them are Democrats, of course. That's that's the capital city, and there's people supporting Magaziner. There's people supporting Gorbea. There's people supporting Alorza. So I don't think by any means Alorza has the Providence Democrats locked up by any means. And so it, you know, his campaign is considered, I think, at this point, a long shot, and we'll have to see, you know, if and when he actually announces it. Yeah, I mean, it's always hard for a Providence mayor to go uh, up to uh, the state house, but he does have a million dollars. I mean, I yeah. mean, that, that that puts him in the game, and uh, so uh, you know, there's been some conjecture that maybe to run for another office like treasurer, but he does seem uh, focused on the governor's race. Don't you get the feeling there are a lot of people in other parts of the state who are like, "You want to run your city of Providence? That's fine. Don't try to be my governor," because we've seen that in other states too, right? Yeah, that's what makes it hard for a Providence mayor. You know, it, it, you've got to communicate with a, a broader audience there, and, it, and it's uh, it, it ha there's not a lot of precedent for it. I don't see the base right now. I don't see where Lords's base is, and I think in a primary that's going to be a spirited one, you're going to have to have some solid uh, folks with you. It turns out that nobody south of Providence actually knows who he is, I don't think. He hasn't done a lot of this, you know, like Joe Palino used to when he was mayor. He hasn't done a lot of the kind of banquet circuits and the town committees and the kind of retail stuff that you do to get around the state. So I wonder exactly what he's thinking. I mean, even people on the east side who really supported him when he ran for mayor are kind of disgruntled with him. And a lot of people, the, the word on him is that he doesn't listen to a lot of people. Okay. The, uh, another thing the governor's having to face, all of a sudden, you talk about the honeymoon period being over. The governor has mandated uh, health care workers, and, which ultimately uh, involves EMTs now also, to be fully vaccinated by October 1st. So that deadline may be passing if you want to get two shots. I find this interesting because the governor's dug in again mm -hmm. and said, hey, we all need to be healthy, we all need to be vaccinated. But there's a surprising, in my mind, number of people who are like, I'm absolutely not going to get the shot. And I'm going to leave my job if it comes to, I always thought the job would be the hook, but yeah. that we hear people saying, I may leave over this. It is surprising, and I'm obviously very curious to see if that's just all talk or if people will actually leave their jobs. In Providence, they put in a vaccine mandate by October 1st for all city employees, but there is another option. If you don't get the vaccine, you have to submit proof of a weekly COVID test. Um, that isn't yet what's happening with the health care mandate because they want all the health care workers to be vaccinated. They're taking care of people who are potentially vulnerable and sick. And, and, and so we'll see if the, if the hook of keeping your job ends up being uh, incentive enough for folks to get vaccinated. Yeah, the stakes are high, right? It's your job and it could be your license. Uh, but it, to your point, the other day, the governor totally st stood by that position, said these are the people taking care of the most frail and, and, and older population. They need to be healthy. Just get vaccinated. That's the message from the president on down to the governor. I think it's the right message. And some people may be upset, but you're in the healthcare business and you have to know that this is something that you're going to have to abide by to keep your job. But there are some people who would argue, particularly since the vaccination rate is so high at these nursing homes, they've said, look, we've been working all along. We have double PPE. We do all of this. And, and there has not been a huge outbreak. So if we're taking those precautions and we feel strongly about the vaccination. So I understand that part. I wonder if it really gets to a mass exodus, whether the governor's going to have to change his mind or whether you think he's... he's 
stays the course. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to see whether they come up with uh, some kind of accommodation like they did in Providence. But, you know, his point the other day was that the percentage is very high already, so it's not that large a group right. of people. Yeah, I think if you're a doctor or a nurse, you're probably already vaccinated. I think it might be some of the ancillary workers in a hospital who we know are very, very important in these days. Yeah, and he brought up the hospital saying, I'm trying to help them uh, maintain a safe environment at the hospitals. And let's stay with you, the New England uh, uh, First Amendment Coalition, very interested, obviously, in the issue of body-worn cameras. We've talked about this for the last couple of years. And it's, you know, it's a corollary to the access to public records, but it's video and it's there's privacy involved. So set the table for the people who may not be following this, because this is going to be a big issue. They passed the budget was, what, three and a half million dollars to get the cameras going. Yep. Now, when and what do you release? Yeah, they provided the, the money to get the body cameras. It, it's, a, it's a positive move. I think it's going to, uh, it, but it's a public record. You know, NEFAC will be weighing in and, and uh, uh, providing the input that the state police and the attorney general are seeking on making the rules for these cameras. But, you know, one thing is clear it's a public record. It, it can, you know, it's providing a glimpse of the truth of the matter. And I think the, the, it, it can help both uh, in cases of police misconduct and to show that police uh, acted appropriately. You know, it, it shows exactly what happened. It's an important document. The key, I think, is going to be when it's released. You know, if, it, if there's a delay and uh, you're going to allow misinformation or suspicion, to, uh, public distrust to grow, I think the sooner the better. When they're making a rule... The videotape doesn't lie, does yeah, it? Yeah, get it out there and, and, and show people. Like the other day with the BB guns, it took six weeks. Like uh, there's been other instances where it takes a long time. I think you need to get it out there. And, you know, the concern that the authorities have is that it, it's going to taint the witness testimony. That's a danger, but so is the danger of allowing public distrust to, to fester. And, then, you know, in Providence, we've had body cameras for a number of years now, so they're sort of the test case here in Rhode Island. And it's been a little bit uneven. They use a lot of discretion in terms of when they release the video and when they don't. And there's been accusations of, well, you release the video in one day when it makes your officers look good, and you withhold it for weeks or months when it makes them look bad. And, you know... I and I, I, I do often praise Providence Police for being one of the most transparent departments in the country, I mean, excuse me, in the state. But uh, when we had Sergeant Hanley uh, arrested for um, assaulting a man in Providence last year, they refused to release the video for months and months. And even, then the head of that board. And then it had to basically be, had to be subpoenaed by the city council and then released by the head of um, the Providence External Review Authority, who was then fired for releasing it. Right. Um, and now he's a, a state representative. But it was... It, a huge rigmarole. It was like eight months after it happened that we finally saw the video, and it was the video was completely different from what Providence Police had said in writing, which was just you know, oh, he struck someone. Is Hanley using that as part of his appeal to say, do you know it all? Because mm. he went up to Superior he, so Court he, after the conviction. Yeah, right? so he hasn't filed, you know, he hasn't filed any arguments for the appeal yet, so we don't know what he's arguing yet. But he already, before his original trial in district court, he. Uh, filed a motion to dismiss based on the fact that the video had been released, yep. and the judge uh, dismissed that. So that argument has so far not held up for him. I think you're going to see litigation around this issue, obviously, because we don't know exactly what the parameters are yet. And it is true, even with video, all of us watch baseball. Sometimes you get a different angle. You can't tell whether the catcher threw the runner out or not. But I think, to Ed's point, the early disclosure of this so the public can make up its mind uh, really would be crucial. 
in most of these situations. And then you put it out there, and then people can get their interpretation. Obviously, a judge may not allow some aspect of this into the trial, or may, but I think this will probably end up at some point with all this proliferation of these body cameras in some kind of a Supreme Court decision. Somebody will take this up, and we know the police unions are fairly well financed and they have good lawyers. Somebody will probably take this situation through the court system and will get, hopefully, some kind of a definitive ruling. And another key point in making these rules is that it, it, there has to be some clarity on when they should be turned on and, and when, uh, when they're off. Mm. You know, it can't just be like, uh, ad hoc when each officer so I, deciding. We often see them turn it on in the middle of the incident because right. well, they I, realize that it's not on. But I talked to Steve Perry about this when they started like five years ago and I said, what's the penalty? Well, we're, you know, there's going to be a, you know, a, a break-in period, but it, the, more often than not, it's not on at the time that you need it. Oh, two cameras were off. So, I mean, so what's the penalty going to be for that if you're yeah. not turning on right. your right. I mean, at the moment, It should be a, second, it should be second Tap, tap, right? Right, and I think it is becoming tap, tap, second nature, but in the heat of the moment, sometimes you forget, and that's why the ACLU has always said, why don't you make it the policy to turn the camera on when you get the call from dispatch? Yeah. Right. So then it's on the whole time you're driving there. You don't have to jump out of the car and turn it on. But here's why these rules are so important now, because, as you know, well, Steph, you may or may not know, in Rhode Island, you can't get access to 911 calls right. be unless one the person who makes the call agrees yeah that's going to happen right or it's part of a court thing so for news purposes we see this over the line in massachusetts yeah. we get the 911 call and you know why that happened because a state senator 25 years ago had a client yeah. who was embarrassed right. by a 911 call rammed it through the general assembly is like yeah screw the media and that has been very it's the only piece of legislation i've ever gone up to testify for wow. and and of course 911 is where about privacy and whatever but once that rule is set we can't get that access and it's been 25 years and in television that's crucial yeah even with the body cameras there are uh, legitimate concerns about privacy you know police responding in the worst moments of people's lives and, and that should be taken into consideration but to your point I totally agree like the, it, the presumption should be openness transparency not secrecy and it's, we as reporters are we're not uh, we want to protect people's privacies too if they if they redact someone's name because they didn't agree for their information to be released. That's usually But the fine. 911, I remember the case nationally. You remember when they were having problems with Toyotas, that the, the gas pedals were sticking? And this was like 10 years ago. And somebody said, oh, you know, some of these people may be faking it. If you heard the 911 calls from some of those mm. people who were freaked out because they, so that, it again. It paints a picture. Yeah. Exactly, it paints a picture. So just going on my little former television reporter uh, <laughs> rant. Uh, Steph, let's stay with you. You had a great long form interview. If you haven't seen it, go to W. PRI.com with the new superintendent, Jose uh, uh, Javier, Javier. Montañez. I'm sorry, I didn't pronounce it correctly. Uh, Javier. So he's been, the good part for him is he's homegrown. But I also wonder the challenges that you talked about coming off the pandemic, coming off the Hopkins report two years ago. What are you looking at for Providence School? What is he looking at? There's no question that it's a really difficult time to become the Providence superintendent. He seems up to the task, but they had, you know, the state took over in late 2019. Only a few months into the takeover, the pandemic hit. The, the first, uh, they called it the state turnaround superintendent, Harrison Peters, resigned in scandal. He was very unpopular among the teachers, and they, they disagree with a lot of the decisions that he made, especially when it comes to staffing. Um, and, then, and then we had the pandemic, right? We had the pandemic, which is horrible 
for education in terms of students missing learning, losing learning. Um, I did a story in the spring that more than half of Providence students were chronically absent last year. So these are all things that uh, Dr. Montagnese is going to have to grapple with. Um, he has one big thing going for him, which is that he's currently very popular. The union is singing his praises. And obviously with their cooperation, it's going to be a lot easier to make changes and implement what he wants to do. But he needs to get the kids back in the classroom. Um, he needs to make sure that the COVID protocols are such that uh, people can stay in school and there's not an excessive amount of quarantining among students and staff that takes them out of school. And then there's the actual turning around of the district and the academics. So a lot for him to uh, worry about right now. What's the parents' perspective? <laughs> you have skin in this game. <clears throat> yeah, the, yeah, my kids go to Providence schools. And, uh, you know, Dan McGowan, my colleague, the other day had a story of, about the new superintendent and w the headline was homeless, dyslexic, uh, dropout and the new superintendent, acting superintendent. And, you know, I just think he's got a very inspirational story and he can relate in a real way to some of the challenges and the systemic problems that uh, Providence is facing. You know, we had that Johns Hopkins report showed uh, all the challenges we have. And he, he seems like he is uh, a good person to address. He's it. been in the trenches with mm -hmm. the people there and it doesn't take him a year to figure out where the bathroom is when he arrives from Tampa, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think one of the problems over the years in Providence schools has been like every couple of years they bring in some outsider who's a genius and Diana Lamb comes in and puts her thing in. Deb Gist is the new commissioner. Tom Brady, the yes, other one. the other right? Tom Brady, not right. TB12, but the other guy. He used to get good restaurant reservations, he told me, because of that. <laughs> and I think that we really need someone uh, where there's going to be some consistency. And I think what the sad part is, is we're going into the third year now of the COVID, this stubborn, awful virus, which, of course, has disrupted everything. But I do think that the new leadership is a little bit better. I remember Governor Raimondo when the uh, famous Johns Hopkins report came out and she said, I didn't know it was this bad. Well, hello. 25 it, years they've been talking about yeah, it. Yeah, you know, it goes back to 1993. I remember when they, you know, they've been doing this for years. And there's just too many uh, blue ribbon panels and white papers. And the shelves are groaning under all these old reports that they've had in Providence. I think now the basics, again, the absenteeism rate's been very high, as we know. It's been a chronic problem going back to, Lord, I covered Providence schools, I think, in 1980s. And it was a chronic problem. Mm -hmm. Even during the essential school era when Ted Sizer was trying to do things differently at Hope High School, there's been a long, 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 long uh, problem in the Providence schools, and that includes absenteeism. We saw even problems with the teachers the last few years. And he, to, have a, to have a superintendent who, and he told me he used to keep his story about being homeless as a teen private, but now he wants to share it because he can talk to kids who are going through maybe what he went through or just dealing with family Living problems. Living at Roger Williams Park and going yeah, to Hope High have, School. You know, Providence is a district full of kids in poverty. Yes. And to have a superintendent who can relate to that, who didn't come from elsewhere where you don't know their backstory or, you know, you, you just see some rich guy who flew in here. And I'm not trying to disparage the prior superintendent, but to have someone who 
grew up here, who dealt with struggles in Providence, I think is impactful for the kids. Just finally, so he's, in effect, auditioning for the job. He was a little coy about saying whether he wanted it long run. Mm -hmm. But, boy, what an incentive for him to really get some stuff done this year, right, if he wants to keep yeah, it. Yeah, if he wants to stay in the position, you know, the ride has not yet said what they're going to do about hiring a permanent superintendent, if they're going to do a big search, or if they're even going to have even posted the job yet since um, Harrison Peters left. Buddy used to say the intergalactic search and then you pick the guy who's like sitting in the <laughs> cubicle course. three. Yeah, exactly. Isn't that the way it's pretty much the way they do He could be though like the Coach Cooley, yeah. the local guy of superintendents and I think that it would be good to have someone like that who really cares about it, who's locally attached and could serve as Steph and, and Ed have pointed out, some, type of, some kind of an inspiration for some of these kids who, frankly, are having a tough time. All right, let's go to uh, outrageous and or kudos. Mr. Fitzpatrick, what's on your mind this week? Uh, Afghanistan. The, you know, there's been so much written about what's happening there, but I'm focused on what's happening to the journalists there, trying to cover it and tell us what's going on. And some have been, uh, the female journalists have been told by the Taliban, your time Clarissa is up. Ward. Yep. Yeah, you, 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 oh, you, you're getting out. And uh, you, they've been... A, uh, threatening, attacking people. So, you know, ju just thinking of the journalists who, are, you know, we might get an angry uh, PIO t uh, telling us off if we do a bad story. They get threatened and shot at. Yeah. What do you have? So I was really outraged um, watching a uh, NBC reporter covering Hurricane Ida earlier this week down south get uh, accosted by a, a man who drove over in his pickup truck to the live shot and got out of the car and ran at him and assaulted him, and he didn't end up being hurt or anything like that, but you just never know with these people that we've run been up there to out us. Of the, we've all been there for, in it television. It really, like, triggers me in a sense because I, yeah, I remember that five years ago there was a reporter and photographer who were shot and killed by a viewer who drove up to their live shot, and we have people run up to us all the time, and you just never know what they're going to do. And, I, you know, I don't run up to you doing your job and tell you how to do it at your office. Don't run up to us and, and touch us and get in our face. When we're trying to report, he was trying to give vital safety information to people in that state who had just been battered by a deadly hurricane. And this man, he said, report accurately. And it was, I, I did see that there was an arrest warrant issued for him. I, I don't know if he's actually been found yet. The reporter was smooth too, because as we've all great. done, he walked away, he kept walking away. I, the tip I always said was, I always told the, the live truck operator, don't set up a monitor. Because, you know, if you're in a crowd, people are looking and they want to yeah, go like this. Yeah. So just fake it like you're we don't not have on those TV. Anymore. Yeah, no monitors. I'm dating myself. So <laughs> you used to put the monitor right there. You're looking at me like, that's uh, like, that's like network level swank yeah. right there. Yeah, there you go. Scotty, what do you have? I, I just think what's going on in Texas is really sad. First of all, this six week abortion law and the voting rights stuff they're doing, uh, it's almost like they're setting up a vigilante type of thing where your neighbors are going to sue you and rat you out if they think, you know, all of a sudden your neighbor gained some weight and then she lost some weight. Did she get an abortion? I mean, you know, I mean some of this stuff is just crazy. And a lot of women, uh, it takes more than six weeks before they actually know where they, whether or not they're pregnant. Maybe they, you know, missed a period. Maybe they didn't. I mean, it's just really seems to me overly restrictive and a little ridiculous. Don't you think ultimately the Supreme Court is going to have to hit it head on rather than this backdoor situation because they're going to have to look at it nationally. I mean, everybody's hair's on fire about Texas right now, but the way they did it was kind of, we're just not going to listen to the appeal, which they do for a lot, but this is an important, obviously an important issue. Yeah, I was minorly surprised, but then again, you have a new composition on the Supreme Court 
And on a lot of the lower federal courts, you have a lot of folks that Trump put in there. And this is going to be the national backlash that we're seeing. And, I, and it's really sad to see people like DeSantis uh, and uh, Abbott, the governors in Florida, respectively in Texas, look like they're angling for, you know, primary votes in 2024 and not really paying attention to what their constituents and what their states need. I mean, both of these states also have a surge in the Delta variant. And they haven't been pushing vaccines. They've been doing the fighting mask mandates, uh, using some of these other rather sketchy, uh, you know, uh, ways to treat it. I mean, who the... In yeah, a, the, the horse, the horse warmer. Yeah, yeah, I mean, some of this all stuff, right. you just can't make it up. All right, that is all the time we have. Scott and Ed and Steph, always good to have colleagues on board here on the set. Folks, if you don't catch us Friday at 7 or Sunday at noon, check out our Facebook page, RhodeIslandPBS.org. We have all of our archive shows and, of course, on Twitter. But the best way to keep up with the news week to week is to come back here next week as the Lively Experiment continues. We hope you have a great week, and we'll see you back here next week. experiment is generously underwritten by for more than 30 years a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders I'm John Hazen White jr. and I'm proud to support this great program in Rhode Island PBS